If you can, turn with me to Psalm 2 today. As we have wrapped up, as we have wrapped up a, a series of sermons in Ephesians, and in the last couple of weeks we've looked at uh, some passages uh, on God's covenant. That's what we looked at last week, was the idea of the covenant, God's covenant in Christ that we saw from all of the biblical covenants, from actually the covenant that God made in the Garden of Eden all the way through to Moses and Noah and David and all the way up to the New Covenant, we see throughout all of Scripture that God is at work and He has promised one thing, that He would never abandon us even though we abandon Him in our sin. Amen? God comes down in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And that's part of the new covenant, that we have then been forgiven of our sin by the blood of his Son. Psalm chapter 2 is one of these psalms that points to this reign of Christ as king, as part of the covenant with David being fulfilled. The psalmist David here writes in Psalm 2 of what's coming. And we're going to take a break here for these next several weeks in the Psalms. Preaching through the Psalms is this wonderful thing that we don't do often enough. Remember that the, the sermons we preach here are expository sermons, and sometimes they can be technical. Sometimes they can be uh, very systematic, especially when you look at Paul's letters. But I want us to look through the Psalms between now and the end of August especially and just kind of let this be a time where we go into the, the beauty of God's song that we see in the Psalms. The Psalms are rich in doctrine and theology, but they're also a form of beauty that sings to our soul. Amen? So if you can, let's stand in read, reading God's Word together. Psalm 2. David the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we listen to these beautiful words of your servant David. And we just see the, the harmony of your will changing even rebellious kings and nations. Wow. 
God, through the blood of your Son, we come into your forgiving presence and you change us. And for that, Lord, we sing praises to you. And today, Lord, we pray that through this wonderful psalm, you would speak to each of us, that you would reveal inside of our hearts what it is that you need for us to hear. Cause us, dear Lord, to come to your voice. Cause us to listen closely. Soften our hearts, Lord, and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. This Psalm of David in Psalm 2 is a beautiful lyrical expression of the Davidic covenant. Remember, God made a covenant with David. He does so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then we read about it again as well in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. God made a covenant with David. Do you all remember that? And he promised through David, the Messiah will come from your descendants. And so this is why God calls David his son. God actually calls David a son of God, a son of God, not the son of God. That's a big difference. And we'll look at that here in a second. But it's this, this psalm here from David, if we re- look at it closely, it is reflecting this covenant that God made with David and that he prophesied and promised that a king would come through the, the kingly line from David. David's house was a house of, of, of reigning as monarch, as God established him as king, not as man set him up as king. And if we remember, God loved David because David was a man after his own heart, meaning that David, even though he was not perfect, can we say amen to that? We read in the Old Testament how David continued to fall over himself, over, (laughs) right? He just, he wasn't like a, he wasn't like Peter, right? Peter just kept sticking his foot in his mouth, right? But David loved God, and even though he fell drastically, God still said, I love you. And David's heart was a heart of repentance. Because his heart was a heart of repentance, God still considers him his son. And through that, God continued to keep his end of the bargain in the covenant with David that the Messiah would come. The prophecy of old that God would send the reigning king, his son Jesus Christ, to eventually take away all sin from those who come in repentance and believing in faith that their sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Psalm number chapter 2 here is an amazing psalm pointing to this truth of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made. See, when God makes a covenant, He doesn't break His end of the bargain. Can we say amen? How many of us have broken our covenant with the Lord When we come in faith through Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness of our sins and we actually believe honestly and truthfully that God does love us and He has washed us clean of our sin, how many of us have broken that covenant with Him from time to time? We all do. And that's the beauty of God's covenants. When He makes a covenant, no matter how much His people break their end of the bargain, God will always provide a Redeemer. (laughs) And he did so through Jesus Christ. And God will always keep his end of the deal, even though we fail. Amen. 
But notice here in Psalm 2, this, it, this, this psalm can be broken down into three sections here. It's speaking about those nations who rebel against God. You realize that there are people who love God and become part of His people, and, and, and because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they come into God's kingdom and they become God's children. But then there are those who totally reject the Word. They reject the gospel. They reject God as sovereign over all. And they would rather worship themselves in what they accomplish rather than what God accomplishes just by speaking. David here in Psalm 2, actually through song, through lyric poetry, a lyrical expression of the beauty of God's word and through the beauty of God's covenant, he speaks about this tension between those who are so proud that they think that they can reject God. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's an interesting wording here, right? Why do the nations rage? Some translations of old have translated this word nations, peoples, and actually, I love this, some translations call them the heathen. Why do the heathen rage against God? We need to bring back some of those old words, like wicked and heathen and that kind of, I don't know. We'll see where that goes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Because if you are a nation, if you are a group of people, even if you're an individual and you have anger toward God, you rage against God's word and you rage against God's promises, you are plotting in vain. Amen? Why do the nations rage? This is what David asks in his song. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Because if you are of the heart of David, you're going to look at the way people are angry against God. You're going to look at people who are actually heathen, and the definition of heathen are those who totally are against God's word and are angry if you try to tell them what to do. He just scratches his head going, what in the world? Can you just imagine David as he's thinking and praying through this wonderful psalm? He's probably just scratching his head here going, why do the people do that? Right? How many of y'all have ever done that with some folks that you know? You just kind of scratch your head and you just shake your head and you go, what? What are you thinking? Some of you have teenagers, right? We had two teenage boys. We love them and they're not teenagers anymore. But there are times where as parents you just look at your lovely children and just shake your head and go, what are you thinking? Right, Tim? (laughs) Amen. Right? God does that to us all the time. David here, as he's singing and writing this beautiful hymn in Psalm 2, he's doing the same thing. Why do the nations rage? Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed I mean, this is just flat-out rebellion. Continuing in verse 2, here's what the kings of the earth and, and those who are of high authority and esteem, they rail against the Lord and against His anointed. And here's what they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are going to set themselves up as more important than God and His Word. And David here in verse 2 acknowledges this. David, who is the king over God's people, he is God's anointed king as God establishes him to be the one who leads his people to wonderful, wonderful victories in battle, but also to be that shining light for all of the nations to see. God has chosen a special people. 
And David looks around at the kings of the earth and he says, why are they against the anointed? Why are they against the Lord? Look, Verse 3 is, is, is very telling here of, of these kings and these nations who reject God. Now ask yourself as you read verse 3 if this sounds familiar from anybody that you know who rejects any kind of, of God obedience. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the heathen here see God's precepts. They see God's commands of obedience as oppressive bonds that they have to break away. Do you know people who just rebel against any kind of authority or structure and they just want a free-for-all, whatever they want to do? Can we say amen? We have a trend right now in our society. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I mean, we've been seeing it coming for years. My grandfather would say it started in the 60s with the hippies whenever the men wouldn't cut their hair. That's what my grandfather used to say. Um, but we have something going on right now. Have you all noticed this where people are like going into grocery stores and opening up ice cream and licking it and putting the ice cream back in the freezer? Have you all seen that? That's a trend right now. So apparently it, it's, it's a challenge for the teenagers to do online video yourself, film yourself getting away with something that stupid. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You, you open it up, you lick the ice cream, and you put it. So when you go buy ice cream now, better make sure somebody hadn't licked it first. It's a thing. Even here in Cookville, I found out this morning, even here in Cookville, at the Cookville Walmart, apparently just this week, three teenagers went down the aisle where the deodorant was, and they took the deodorant, used it, and put it back on the shelf. Here in Cookville. That's the, that's the attitude that we see here in Psalm 2, verse 3. These kings of the earth set themselves apart from God. They set themselves up in their own counsel. And they look at God's word and his precepts in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the attitude of rebellion. God is binding us too much. We reject it. We will break God's rule over us. You see what's happening? Now, before we pass too much judgment on the heathen, remember that's the translation here of verse 1 of the nations, okay? I'm just using the translations here. How many Christians use the same language of Psalm 2 verse 3? How many Christians who claim the name of Christ see the obedience to God's word and his law as something that is a bond that must be broken? Remember a couple of weeks ago, on actually it was July 7th, if you want to go listen to that sermon, it's on our website, on our podcast, you can go listen to it. The freedom of Christ that God, Christ brings us is not the freedom from oppressive godly obedience. The freedom that Christ gives us is not freedom from the bonds of God's law. The freedom that Christ gives us is the freedom from the guilt and the oppression of sin that keeps us in a trap. Amen? And what David is telling us here in Psalm 2 as he's singing praises to the Lord. Remember, that's what David's doing here in the Psalms. He's singing praises to the Lord through this wonderful hymn that he writes. He points to those who, who think of God's precepts as bonds that must be burst apart and cast away as cords. Anyone who has that thought about God's word is a heathen. That's pretty strong language, amen? 
nominal Christianity is this attitude of those who claim Christ but think like Psalm verse chapter 2, verse 3. Nominal Christianity are those who claim the name of Christ because they think it is the cool thing to do or because they've been pressured into being baptized by their mothers or their fathers or they don't want to be embarrassed at vacation Bible school and just want to go get baptized or because it's the thing to do. But in their hearts, of, in their deepest recesses of their heart, they actually think of God's precepts as something that is binding to them and, and oppressive to them and their hearts are like Psalm 2 verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If that is your attitude toward God's word, then I caution you to look at what David has to say here in verses 1 through 3. That is not a Christianity at all. It is Christianity in name only. And you look at God's word as something that is a law that should be broken, even though Paul does speak against obedience of the, of the law, he's not talking about tossing away the law. He's talking about obeying Christ as the one who fulfilled the law. Big difference. Amen? So David here in Psalm 2, the first three verses, he's setting up the attitude of rebellion here. Now, verses 4 through 9 of this wonderful psalm is the meat, is the, is the meat of this wonderful hymn. It's the, it's the essence of what David is singing. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Who, who's, who's, the, who's being held in derision? It's those heathen kings and nations who see God's precepts as oppressive. Verse 4, here's the response from God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at those nations and those individuals who look upon His law as something to be broken. Amen? He laughs at them because kings and rulers of nations who set themselves up in this situation think that they're more important than God. And God here in verse 4 laughs at them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These kings and these nations who think themselves so important and we don't need God's word, we don't need God's law, and they just see it as something that they need to avoid and, and break apart. It's not just nations who do this. It's individuals. It's our society. It's our culture. We do this. And God looks upon this and He laughs and He says, you think that you are so righteous and that you are some self-righteous king that you establish your own monarchy and you set up your own kingdom? How many people do that? We set up our own little kingdom and no one can tell us what to do. Amen? God laughs at that. And He says, okay, you think you're so high and mighty? You think that you're this king or this queen? We see ourselves as self-righteous kings and queens. And God says, aha, Okay, I'm going to laugh at I'm going to set up my own king. I'm going to set up my king. My son, Jesus Christ, is going to be the king that I promised would come from David, and that king is going to trump your kingdom. Amen? Wow. 
Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. This is God speaking here, right? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Speaking about this king that God is setting up. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God is speaking here about establishing Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah that he told David would come. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now why is this important? I want to stop here verse 7 for a little bit because this here is the meat of Psalm 2. And when we look at Psalm 2, verse 7, we've got to remember that God is not establishing an earthly king here. Even though he did this through, uh, first of all, Saul and then David, right? He set up Saul as the king because the people demanded it. And then David becomes the king that God says, I will make a covenant with you and your house. God says, I am establishing my son who has been begotten. Now, this is an important theological thing that we need to make sure we get. Because this one verse, Psalm 2, verse 7, has been so taken out of context in church history that there have been such false teachings made out of this one verse that people have gone down heretical roads of error that they do not even worship the true God anymore because some teachings have come out of this that have led them astray. Jesus is God's Son. Can we all agree on that? But what does that mean? See, when you and I have children, we have these kids, you know, sons and daughters, right? They are part of us, yes, but they're individual, they're unique, right? Can we say amen to that? We look at our kids and say, you're not like me. You're, you're all, really, kids are their own person. And if you've raised more than one kid in a family, you know that each and every one of them are different. They're not a one of them are the same, and not a one of them are like you. Amen? That's not what we're talking about here. When God's Son, Jesus Christ, is begotten, that's an important word, that means Jesus Christ, the Son, is by essence the same as God. The word essential comes from this idea of essence. Essence is the very being of what is. Every one of us has an essence that makes us who we are. Every object in the world, everything that has been created has an essence that we define it by. But Jesus Christ does not have a unique essence apart from God. That's the point here about you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This sonship of Jesus Christ is not the same as an offspring that is born. Jesus, even though he was born of a virgin, was not born differently than God. He was begotten as, as a part of God himself coming. This is the theology that we must understand here from this text that is supported in the New Testament because if we think of God as just another offspring as a baby boy born, then we're going to mistake that he may not be God. That's the problem. 
You see, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son, not a Son, but the Son of God, is of the same essence of the Father. Whatever makes God God, His essence, is the exact same essence that Jesus possesses. That's important for us to know. Because if Jesus the Son has His own unique essence apart from God the Father's essence, suddenly now we get in where God is more than, it's not just one God, He's three gods, separate gods, and that's not right, that's false. God is not three gods, He's one. But God is three in one. That's a different sermon altogether. Now we see here in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, God is king. And we're talking here in Psalm 2 about rebellious kings of the earth who set themselves up above king. And God is reminding us through David's psalm here that he is the king and his, his plans will not change. If God has made a promise through David, that promise will stay the same. Because think about this. If God has to change his promise, how perfect was the promise to begin with? God's promise is perfect and unchangeable, and it will not falter, it will not sway. So if God made a promise to David, it's coming to pass, and David is singing praises of that here in Psalm 2, verse 7. See, because we see in Scripture, God is perfect, and everything that He says is perfect and unchangeable. We see that in Deuteronomy 32. We see that in 2 Samuel 22. We see that in Psalm 18, verse 30. We're actually going to preach on Psalm 18, verse 30 here in a couple of weeks. That everything that God speaks, everything that He does is unchangeable and perfect. Therefore, the Son of God who comes is not a change of who God is. He is God's essence in the flesh. He was begotten. A very unique term, a very special term that was chosen to try to describe what is undescribable. When God says, you are my son, we also have to remember that in Scripture, uh, who are the sons of God, right? Adam was actually called a son of God. Luke chapter 3 tells us that, right? Angels have even been called sons of God in Job, several places in the book of Job. But Hebrews clarifies that for us. But even, even pious people, even pious men, those who are righteous in God's eyes, those who keep His law, are actually called sons of God. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, we see it in Romans chapter 8, we see it in the Gospels, John chapter 3. But we must make sure we don't confuse that because we are called sons of God, children of God, as Ephesians chapter 5 calls us, that does not mean that we are the same as Jesus. We are, we are Christ-like, but we are not Christ. We do not have the same essence of God as Jesus does. Jesus possesses the same essence of God the Father. You and I don't. At best, we mimic and copy the image of Christ as God calls us to be as Christians. You see, we have to look here at, at chapter, seven, or chapter 2, verse 7, and wh where is this coming from? Why, why is this important? And I don't want to belabor the point here, but this is very important for us to touch on. There was, a, in the first couple of centuries of the, of the church, there was this tension over this kind of understanding of Jesus as begotten. I mean, this, this term of begotten son is something that David wrote long before Jesus was ever born. And if Jesus was born of woman, 
Is Jesus born or is Jesus begotten? <laughs> See, so the early fathers of the church in the first couple of centuries were wrestling with this deep problem. Because if we don't get this right, then we're going to teach wrong things and we're not going to worship Jesus as he is. We're going to worship a made-up idol that we call Jesus. And that's an important thing. And so the church has wrestled with this. And I think they've solved it. And it's a very important... I don't, I'm not going to have a, a, a theological lecture this morning. But we do, we do need to understand the point here. There was, a, there was a point of contention in one of the early church councils. It was the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Council of Nicaea developed what we now call the Nicene Creed. If you want to go look this up, there's a reason why this creed was penned the way it was. Not as something that saves us or as something that substitutes Scripture, but as something that helps us understand Scripture and helps us understand what God is saying here. Here's the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, that is from the substance or essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation descended and became incarnate, becoming human, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. That's just part of the Nicene Creed. Now why is this important for us to understand in relation to Psalm chapter 2? Because at the reason that this became a debate was because there were some teachings happening in the church that eventually became known as the Arian Controversy. Arius was an elder in the church of Alexandria, and here's what he was teaching. He was claiming that, strictly speaking, the word, the Logos, was not God. But instead, the word Logos was the first of all creatures. That was being taught. He says that before anything else was made, the word, the Logos, Jesus himself, had been created by God. Now, if God creates Jesus Christ as a son, as a creation, then that means that Jesus is going to be under the curse of Adam as the created, birthed thing, like you and me, and he would be under the curse of Adam. Jesus can't be that if he's going to pay the price for our sin. So therefore, based on Psalm 2, this is just one passage. But it, there, there are several passages of Scripture that the Nicene Creed deals with here. Arius was in error. He was teaching something incorrect because he was developing a Christ that was not true. So therefore, the words in the Nicene Creed made it very clear to point out that Jesus Christ was begotten, not made. Because if we are birthed, then we are made. Jesus, even though he was birthed, he was still one substance with the Father, one essence with him. The Nicene Creed also points out the one substance and harmony of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what the Nicene Creed concludes. He says, But those who say that there was when he was not, and that before being begotten he was not, or that he came from that which is not, or that the Son of God is of a different substance or essence, or that he is created or mutable, these the church anathematizes. That's a big word. The Nicene Creed didn't pull any punches here. The church made it real clear. Anyone who thinks that Jesus is not of the same essence of God 
is anathema, meaning that they are not Christian at all. They are in error. So anyone who teaches that Jesus somehow failed to be God or ceased to be God, they are in error of the truth of the word. Amen? Amen? That's why that's important here. Now, what is, let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. I went a little bit longer on that than I wanted to, but it was good. God here in Psalm 2 continues to, pro, to proclaim this. Speaking through his servant David, God says this, Ask of me, in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the, this is the promise to the Son, to Jesus himself, the Messiah, that God is establishing him as the king of kings over all people, over all nations, and he says, you will crush them with a rod of iron because I'm giving you the earth to possess. Now, verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 2. Let's remember that in the first three verses, we point out the rebellion and the, and the rage of the heathen against God and His word and His, obe- and His law. In verses 4 through 9, God is saying, I'm establishing my Son, who is of the same essence of the Father, to be the highest of all kings, even above these kings who think they're so important. In verses 10 through 12, there's an offer of repentance here. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with what? Fear. And rejoice with Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Even though these kings of the earth are clearly sinning, even though these kings of the earth are rebellious and arrogant in their own pride, Once they see the truth of the Son, Jesus Christ, there is the hope and offer, please repent. Please serve the Lord with fear. Bow down before Him and rejoice. Wow. Can we rejoice as we bow? (laughs) In fear and trembling before the Lord, there is also joy in the midst of that. So God is not a God who is going to crush His opponents. He's going to show them the truth of the order of things. And in that, when we stand before God Almighty, it it is impossible for anyone who is honest with God to stand in pride. Anyone who is honest with God as the Lord, sovereign King of all that there is, anyone who is honest with His Son, Jesus Christ, who has been raised up and begotten as the King over all the earth, no one can stand up for that. They will be broken and humble in fear and trembling and actually rejoice in the process. And in that verse 12, he says, In your rejoicing and trembling and fear, kiss the Son. What would you do when you came to a king to show that, that monarch your sign of loyalty? Even now, okay, Britain, that we all 
see in the news about their monarchy. We seem to follow the royal family of, of England. You know, they have a queen, Elizabeth, not a king necessarily right now. But even then, when, when visitors come, visit, uh, representatives of state who come and visit with the, with the queen, what do they do? They bow in humility, and there may even be a point where they'll kiss a ring or something. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of, you are king, I am not. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what is David singing here in this, this wonderful psalm? He is reminding all nations, all people, everyone on the earth, anyone who hears these words, we are not our own kings. Despite what some in the church will teach. We are not our own royalty. We are not our own kings. We are are bought by a very precious price of blood. And we are set up as children of God. And that restores in some form what God originally intended with Adam and Eve to be the priest kings of the, of the Garden of Eden, even though they fell from that grace. But that doesn't mean that we are king or queen. We only have that authority to have dominion over the earth, to be lights of Christ as God deems appropriate. He is the one that we bow and we kiss his ring. We kiss the sun. And then we are blessed because we take refuge in the blood of Christ. That's why we worship. If we are in sin, we are in rebellion and we see God's word as oppressive. But if we submit and give proper respect and honor to the God of all and to His Son, Jesus Christ, who has clearly paid for our lives. If we, were, if we kiss that Son's ring and we bow at His feet, as the woman caught in adultery worshipped Him, And as Jesus, who sat at the table with all of the Pharisees, and this woman comes in and kisses his feet and cries tears over his feet and cleans it with her hair. How many of us are humble enough to do something like that? How many of us will bow down to that and take refuge in Christ's protection over us? That brings joy. <laughs> Amen. It's awesome. And so th- this wonderful psalm, again, I want to close with this reminder. It is a beautiful expression of the promise that God made to David. There's some hard words here. There's some hard truth here. It's amazing how God can take something that is hard to hear and make it beautiful to listen to. <laughs> Amen. That's a wonderful. And so is God worthy of our praise? Is Jesus worthy of our loyalty? We can only do so through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in the believer. We can only do so through understanding that we are not in charge. 
And this is why we come on Sunday morning, not to worship ourselves, but to worship God. And worship through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we go through our everyday routines this week, let me encourage us all. When things get overwhelming and we get frustrated, why are we frustrated and overwhelmed? It's because we're no longer uh, kings of our own domain. It's not going the way I want it to. And we get frustrated. Can we all confess? What if we remembered the words of this beautiful psalm and said, let's kiss the Son and take refuge in Him instead? and toss away our self-righteous monarchy and say, God, you are king. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. And as always, Father, we can only understand what your Holy Spirit gives us inspiration to understand. And so, God, we thank you for loving us enough to humble us as a father does. You do not crush us as much as you break and remold our spirit. And for that, dear God, we do take refuge in your Son. And because of that, dear God, we do lean upon your strength. And I pray, God, that you would take these words that we've listened to today and you'd bring them back to our minds throughout the week. And Father, if we are here right now, in rebellion against you. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would right now convict us of that. I pray, dear God, that you would love us enough to make us more in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, just as Jeremiah says that you are the potter and we are the clay. Mold us and shape us and humble us, dear God. And give us that joy that is found in trembling before your holiness. There's a joy. We thank you, God, for that. This time is yours, God. Work in our spirits. Change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to you. Let the world around me fade away. Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to you. For I desire to worship and obey. draw me close closer Lord to you let the world around me fade away 
waters draw me close, closer, Lord, to you, for I desire to worship and obey. Are all hearts clear? Do we serve a risen Lord who loves us? Is He not worthy of our praise?